All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. We are here with father and son co-hosts, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Great, Andrew. We've got a great guest here today. Yeah. Uh, little technical difficulties. We're going to try to do this. Uh, we've got our guest on the phone, so we got the speaker. Plus, we got the video, so we can see our guest. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how this records. Yeah, so we're I, glad technology is reliable. So get right into it, Andrew. We are excited to have our special guest. Doug Liz Smith is his full name, or you might recognize the name Doug Glatt from the movie Goon. So Doug uh, began his professional hockey career in the ECHL, suiting up for the Carolina Thunderbirds from 88 to 89, and then had a stint with the Jonestown Chiefs during the 89 and 90 season. The following year, he played in the NBSHL and then later made a few appearances in the AHL before retiring from playing. Doug later became a co-author for a book on his experiences as a minor pro hockey player in 2002, and nine years later became a very popular film for all hockey fans and non-hockey fans alike. So i just like to get right into it and discuss this story today. So let's welcome our special guest, Doug Smith. Man, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. Thank you very much for having me. So, Doug, I'm going to kind of pick it up here. Uh, we, we tried to do a little homework on you. Um, and you grew up as an amateur boxer, Golden Glove, there in Massachusetts, and you didn't even really skate until you were 20 years old and play your first organized hockey game at age 22. Is that right? That's correct. I, um, I just happened to start late. Again, I did box as a kid growing up, and uh, I think it was more of a pipe dream for a couple of buddies of mine. Uh, especially the kid that wrote the book with me, Adam Hurtazio. Um, you know, he had played hockey as a kid growing up, and he just always had this dream, fantasy, let's call it, that uh, Doug's got a fighting background, and if he could ever learn to skate, he could be maybe a minor league tough guy. So, again, I did start late, 20 years old. Um, I didn't play my first organized hockey game until I was 22, but thankfully, I was athletic enough to pick it up. And by the time I was 23, I was on the East Coast League trying to fight my way onto a, a roster with the Carolina Thunderbirds. So if anybody knows uh, anybody that's learned to skate for the first time, it's pretty pitiful. So I'm, I'm kind of imagining you at age 20 getting on, I'm going to assume, you know, pond hockey, if not, you know, going up in the, I don't know, wherever, Saugus and Route 1 and trying to skate. And your ankles get, I mean, how bad were you at 20 if you've never been on blades before? Yeah, so it was ugly. There's no two ways about it. Um, you know, at that time, I was six foot two, 250 pounds. I was a weightlifter in the gym, along with being a, a boxer. So uh, balance, of course, is a major issue. And uh, you're right, I traveled all over. I'd go up north, uh, north Shore to Hockey Town, and I'd try to play pickup hockey. And... Um, I even really swallowed a lot of crow and I did uh, skating lessons in my area with kids that were seven, eight, nine years old because they didn't give hockey lessons out for adults. They just offer kids. And I remember sitting down with a guy in my area. He, um, you know, ran endless hockey school to kids and I told him what I wanted to do and he supported me. And he probably snickered behind my back, but he said, listen, you know, come on out. I'll let you skate around with the little kids. And I mean, you know, there's nothing worse than having a seven or an eight year old kid burning by you while you're falling down. <laughs> trying to be 
So, uh, I mean, when I played hockey as a kid up there in the North Shore, uh, I remember uh, I would have to go to a special uh, 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 training coach, Andrew, and uh, it was a guy, uh, Vincent uh, Skating Academy. I think his name was Paul Vincent, and he actually uh, would teach you balance and skating drills, and he would even uh, teach the kids how to uh, properly body check. So is that something about where you're talking about, Doug? Yeah, exactly. I had a coach down here. Um, his last name was uh, Chickasola. He was out of Rockland. Uh, he helped me out tremendously. And uh, I was actually fortunate enough to meet Paul Vincent years and years later. Um, I had actually already retired from hockey when I met Paul. And he and I worked together. He would have these summer camps for pros. And not to accelerate and go too fast too forward in our conversation, but after I retired from being a player, I ended up being an instructor and I was teaching pros how to defend themselves because I knew I had the fighting background. I knew how to teach guys what to do. I just physically started too late and I wasn't as good an athlete as some of those guys were. So Paul Vincent and I worked together for numerous summers he would skate them into the ground and then I'd get them at the end and teach them how to fight and do drills like that. So Paul Vincent, again, is a, uh, he's a big piece of my story for sure. Oh yeah. And I still, I think last I heard he was teach uh, he was working with uh, Florida Panthers. I don't know if he still is, but anyway, I'm sorry, Andrew, you got a question no, here. Yeah. So I was just curious. Doug, so when you're learning, first learning how to skate and everything, I mean, it is quarter inch blades and, you know, people always say, how do you, even begin to keep balance or fight on skate. So did you even like the idea when it was kind of presented to you that you could fight and, you know, in minor pro, pro hockey, or was it kind of like when you started skating, like there's no way. Yeah, there, there was definitely a little while where I was saying to myself, why am I wasting my time? It was really difficult to keep my balance. It was really difficult to just get up and down the ice. And, uh, and when I tell you that, I started off like a little kid. I'm not kidding you. Like I had, you know, one of those things that you put in front of you and you get your feet moving. Like it was awful. And, um, but eventually I graduated to a hockey stick and learned how to use that as balance and get my legs moving. And, um, you know, it was very discouraging at the very beginning. There's no choice about it. But, you know, I stayed strong mentally and I just kind of kept fighting through it. And, you know, I'd go to these skating clinics two, three nights a week and skate with all these little kids. And, and honestly, it didn't take long. I probably was, you know, three or four or five months into it. And I was starting to whiz around pretty good. And, and for me personally, it wasn't about becoming a hockey player like every other kid wanted to be. I didn't care about carrying the pocket. I didn't care about shooting on net. For me, it was all about balance. And if I dropped my gloves and I squared off with someone, would I be good enough not to fall down and make an ass out of myself? And that was what the whole thing was based on. My skating, my tutoring from all these instructors is about balance. So it almost sounds like a, a here, hold my beer type, you know, thing, at, at least at the beginning. I don't know. I mean, was it kind of, I mean, not a joke, but it was kind of like, I think you could do this and you try it. It's like, all right, I'll give this a shot. But it's almost like a here, hold my beer. I'll try this. Right. I think it was. I think it was. And uh, if I didn't see any results as quickly as I did, 
I probably would have said, give me my beer back. <laughs> now, so at, so you start playing uh, hockey for real at age 22. How how long did it take when you got your first pro contract? Well, it was actually that very next season. I, uh, you know, I happened to luck out and, and meet a scout who was uh, working for the Buffalo Sabres, and he saw me playing the summer league in my area. And he said, uh, you know, he said, listen, I understand your story. I know you just started with evidence. Um, you know, I'm skating around with guys that are in the NHL and the minor leagues and the summer league. And, you know, I try to explain to people that, you know, equivalent, as an equivalent, my skating was probably as like, say, a freshman in high school. You know, I wasn't a pro skater, but I could, get, I could keep up. I could get around the ice a little bit. I just wasn't keeping up with those guys. But that wasn't the purpose. Because back in the 80s, uh, when I first started out, you know, you didn't really have to be a fluent skater. You're just an insurance policy on a bench as a fighter. And, uh, and teams would employ you. So, again, my whole angle was balance and um, getting out on the ice to be the team's protector. So did how did you perfect that balance? Because if people don't know, and I'm sure our listeners do, if they never played hockey, um, you, you know, balance. I mean, if you don't have good balance, you're going to be thrown. You're going to be ragged all around, and and it's it's very dangerous. So if you're going up against guys that have been skating their whole lives, how did you learn that balance? Yeah. So again, my training was all based on dropping the gloves wearing off, grabbing and holding and pulling the jersey with guys like Adam. And, uh, you know, Adam, just to give you a background, Adam played high school and college hockey with Captain Framingham State. And Adam was a nationally ranked power lifter. He was super strong. You know, kid could, kid could probably squat 600 pounds, and he was just a really strong guy. So for him to grab me and, like you said, ragdoll me, that's how I learned my balance. And eventually I was able to understand how to position my feet and how to, you know, my stance and not get pulled off my skates. And, uh, you know, the, the fighting itself wasn't a concern for me because I knew I knew how to punch with both hands and, you know, I could take a punch. It was all about balance. And Adam was my key asset there, teaching me how to develop it. Yeah. And so we've talked to some, you know, other hockey players before on our show that have been, especially enforcers in, in the minor leagues at times, what was that jungle like of the ECHL? We always hear stories of just everybody was tough. Everybody could fight. How was it like for you, especially as a non-hockey player growing up and all of a sudden now you're playing with guys who've been playing forever and all that. Yeah, exactly. So when I got in the East coast league in the mid eighties, there was only five teams and the players that were in this league, you were either a tough guy or you were a, 50 goal scorer. That was the only way of getting out of this league. And when I tell you every team employed four or five tough guys, and they were all heavyweights, they were all, you know, really good at what they did. Um, and you just had to fight your way through every single one of them every night of the week. And, um, you know, you play a 60 game schedule and, um, you know, you play the same teams like a dozen times. So believe me, after a couple of meetings, the rivalries would get very heated. And um, it was almost a disappointment for me if I didn't have two fights in every game because it was almost expected. And the fans expected it. And truthfully, I expected it because, like I said, each team had three, four, five tough guys. So there was plenty to pick from. 
And for me personally, it was easy for me to get fights because nobody knew me. I was brand new. And, um, you know, if you watched me skate around, you weren't going to be intimidated. Um, you know, and a lot of those guys were bigger than I was. I wasn't a real, at 6'2", 245, 250. I obviously wasn't the heaviest of the heavyweights because there were guys that were like 6'6". Six, six. So um, it was definitely a very tough uh, educational first rookie year. <laughs> and so was, was there a, uh, I mean, especially the enforcers, you know, that you had a fight against in the ECHL during your first year, did they show you, I mean, did they have a lot of respect for you? Because I'm sure a lot, everybody probably knew your story and that, you know, you had just started skating not too long. Or did they have a lot of respect for you? Was it kind of like, who is this guy? It's a joke. Or, I mean, how, how, how do they treat you like that? There was no respect amongst the fighters. Everyone was cutthroat. Everyone wants to climb the ladder and get out. And, uh, and no one gives a shit where you're from, no more than I did. You're just in my way. You're, you're, a, you're a, a pylon. I got to get around to climb the ladder. Um, no one really knew my story because it was kept quiet. You know, no one's really researching the background. No one knew if I played high school or college or juniors. So, um, you know, they probably just thought I was a shitty skater, but I was willing to fight. Awesome. Wow. Wow. So, um, well, I'll ask this question. Andrew was going to ask this. So what was it like your first professional team, again, with the Thunderbirds, you end up winning the Riley Cup. What was that like, and what was the team like? Yeah, so, I mean, we had a very skilled team with three or four tough guys, myself included, and uh, we just had enough of a, a, an ingredient of, you know, a, a mix and a gel that, you know, we ended up winning the whole championship, which was unbelievable. Now, in the finals, the actual finals, um, I didn't dress. I didn't dress one game. Because, you know, coaches figured that there's going to be no fighting and um, it's going to be all skills, just like today's hockey. And uh, it kind of backfired in the first game. We played the Johnstown Chiefs, notoriously known as being a tough team. And, uh, and they played rock there for a couple of nights of the series. But we still had a couple of tough guys in the lineup. And um, although I didn't play, I, like I said, in that seven-game series, we still won it. And I was a part of the team, so I you know, got to win a championship. Yeah. And so do you, do you have a specific memory from your first professional minor pro game? Well, my first game in, I got to play against the uh, Knoxville Ch Cherokees, I believe they were. And I got to fight a kid named Greg Batters, who was a Los Angeles Kings draft deck and a, and a tough guy in that league already established. And my second fight going out um, was against a, a Quebec kid who was already known as a tough guy in that league. Uh, his name was Alex Davio. And, um, and I did very well. My very first night, my very first two fights, I, I'm not going to say I won them, but I did very well. Um, you can find them on YouTube. But uh, it was an explosion in my home rink because the fans went berserk. They went crazy. And uh, I thought there was going to be a parade down Main Street the next day for me. They loved it. So, uh, and you, and you got to remember that back in that day, you know, down in the South, where all the rednecks and the hillbillies are, they don't care if their hockey team wins or loses. They want to see blood. They want to see fighting. And so, for like a city rat from up here in Boston, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is crazier than the city. <laughs> <laughs> and so, after you, you your team won that, the Kelly or the, the what, what was it called back the Riley in the day? Cup. The Riley Cup back in the day. 
you had now started playing for the Jonestown Chiefs first uh, stint of games with them. How, how did you hook up with the team after, you know, your team had just beat them in the playoffs? Yeah, the following season, um, I didn't get picked up by Carolina. They got a new coach, and they kind of went a different direction. And, and I was very content on basically just saying I had a little stint. I got to play minor pro. Let's just kind of move on and, um, you know, get on with my career in, in, in the real world. And um, I would say near the very end of the next season, I got a call from Steve Carlson, who was the head coach of Johnstown, famous for the movie Slapshot, and a former WHA player himself, real tough guy. And, uh, and I, I remember the phone call. He, he called me up and he said, um, you know, hey, Smitty, I don't know if you're still playing or if you're willing to fight, but, uh, you know, I got about eight to ten games left. We're not going to make the playoffs. And, uh, and there's a couple of real assholes that we faced throughout the year that I'd love to pay back. <laughs> He's willing to come down and do the job. And I said, absolutely. I was like, you know, where's my plane ticket? <laughs> and um, it was incredible to meet Steve Carlson. It was great to sit back and talk with him, um, you know, literally about fighting. And, um, you know, he helped me out immensely in the mornings at practice. He would teach me things because he knew I wanted to do the job. I was just a little raw and a little green in the, in the field itself. And, um, you know, that's a coach that, could provide me something that most other coaches could never provide me. So what was it like? I, I know you had a short stint there in Jonestown, but you know, that is the team that uh, you mentioned slap shot that the Charlestown chiefs were uh, modeled after. What was it like to play there? Was it kind of a crazy place or just like any other place? Yeah, it was very unique. Um, I, I, the, one of the first things I remember is the first game I played in sitting on the bench and, and turning around and the fans were sitting right behind our bench with no glass. There's no petition. And I remember like literally you could like a, like a fan could just touch you on the helmet on the pads and, and, you know, and say hi and talk to you. And, um, you know, it was really unique and it was a very, it was a small rink. And again, like any other place, they had a history of toughness. So they wanted to see fighting and, uh, you know, I'm brought in, and I'm sure at this point it had circulated that I was coming in from, you know, last season. And um, I had a little bit of a reputation as being a guy that's willing to go. So they expected a lot from me, and I tried to provide that for them. And so, you know, my father tells me all the time, we've gone to some hockey games, obviously, and we had the Tulsa Oilers ECHL uh, team about an hour away from us. So we like to go to some ECHL games. And, you know, we see a lot of families there and their kids and everything. And you're just describing back in the day when there was no glass, the fans could touch you, especially during those ECHL days. I mean, were the fans really crazy? Is there any crazy stories and throwing stuff at you, trying to fight? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to tell Andrew, even back in the day, you know, you go to the old Boston Garden and there's not too many kids there unless they played hockey. And, you know, you got the fans throwing shit at people and, and it, it, it wasn't the family experience that hockey is today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, in Carolina, while my first year I witnessed, and it was it was relevant in Johnstown, so it was the same nonsense, but I probably saw more fights in the stands than I did on the ice. <laughs> you know, the fans are crazy. I mean, you know, they're, they're drinking all night, and if their team doesn't win or there's a bad penalty, right, what do they do? They litter the ice with cups and stuff because they're, they're pissed off at the referee. So, yeah, that's... That, Boston is is so well behaved as a, as a as a comparison. 
to these minor league towns because, you know, these guys just worked around the clock out in some mine somewhere digging for oil or digging for coal. And they, they just spent their hard-earned money for like a $7 ticket to watch a game. And if there's no fights, they feel like they got ripped off and they, they, they display their anger. So, so Slapshot, the, the writers for Slapshot, they got it right. Yeah, I mean, they were pretty on with that. You know, like I said, the fans, they, they are very, you know, I don't know, passionate about their game, and they want to see violence. <laughs> so after you played those, those two seasons in the ECHL, you went and played in the New Brunswick Senior Hockey League, the NBSHL. I've never even heard of that league, but you averaged 7.39 penalty minutes per game. So I assume this was also another – really tough kind of minor pro league as well. Yeah, I too never had heard of the league and I had gotten a call from um, a scout who was with the Winnipeg Jets and he had said, listen, there's a league up here. It's within the vicinity of Moncton in the American Hockey League. And, um, you know, it'd be a great place for you to come up and play for a season because it's a, a little holding pen so to speak, of a league where you've got some ex-NHL and ex-minor league tough guys who are still playing, maybe still chasing the dream, or they may be kind of retired from that level, and they're just still looking to stay in shape and play competitive hockey. And, uh, and this friend of mine said, you know, you might want to come up here and give it a shot. And I said, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's give it a shot because I wasn't going to get back into the East Coast League. I think at this point, the league... Although it was still a tough league in, in the East Coast League, they were probably gearing themselves towards, you've got to be a little bit better of a player. You can't just sit on the bench and go out for one shift a game and fight. You know, my effort was appreciated, I'm sure. But I needed to bring more to the game, and I wasn't able to do that. I just wasn't that good of an athlete to compete at that level. So going up to New Brunswick, playing in this men's senior league, um, I ended up being the only American in this league. I was the only import. They're all Canadian. They're all from Quebec. And uh, when I tell you that guys were like licking their chops waiting to get at me because I was like fresh meat, every night I had two fights. It was crazy. And these guys are tough. Those guys that played in the NHL, um, you know, it was a really violent league. And uh, if you think the South is nutty, these Canadians up there are even wackier. <laughs> they really want to see fights. And, um, yeah, so I was in my element. I was loving it. And I, I survived, barely. There were a couple of nights I got my ass handed to me. But uh, overall, I did enough to stay for the, for the season. And um, we had a little bit of a playoff run, but we lost, I think, in the second round. But, um, yeah, that was an incredible experience. That was probably my favorite year or favorite team I got to play with just because of the fighting alone. There was just so much fight. It was crazy. So, and, and this is where I think you're, you, you differ a lot from our previous guests. We've had a lot of uh, former enforcers from um, every league. And, you know, they kind of talk about how they were a hockey player first and then they had to transition into the role of enforcer. And most of the time, hey, if I want to make it to the NHL, I'm going to have to fight. But they all say they didn't like fighting. We hear that over and over again. And I don't know if they're, you know, telling us the truth or not, but it seems like you're honest and you're going, no, I was a, a golden clubs boxer 
and I wanted to fight in hockey. And you seem to enjoy the the one on one competition of 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 fighting, boxing, and hockey. Is that accurate? Oh, 100% accurate. I mean, and I'm not like any other kid that played the sport of hockey because, again, I didn't grow up wanting to be a hockey player. And you're right. Every tough guy will tell you, I didn't grow up as a kid playing peewees or high school or juniors. I wanted to be a, a goon or a tough guy or an enforcer. That wasn't my ambition in the game. You know, I wanted to be like, you know, Gordy Howe or Wayne Gretzky. But at some point, some of these guys realized that, you know, Players like them, mediocre type of style players, they're a dime a dozen. And you need to do something to be noticed. And some of these guys found that if they dropped their gloves and fought a little bit, uh, some of them were really good at it. They never knew they had this ability. And, uh, and they excelled at it. And that opened up doors to higher levels. Some guys made it all the way to the NHL just on fighting. And believe me, I've talked to dozens and dozens of guys over the years um, who will tell you the same thing. I didn't anticipate being a fighter, but it got me four, five, six, seven years in the NHL because I was willing to drop the gloves and fight. And again, for me, I was exactly the opposite. I had no desire at all to be an actual hockey player. I wanted to be a fighter because that was my background as a boxer growing up. So again, in my time zone, you know, the 80s and 90s, I was able to succeed at that because of the, you know, the, the way it was. Yeah. I was going to say you, 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 I would imagine have a huge advantage over any enforcer because you're a boxer. So you're used to taking the hit, getting the bell rung where some of these enforcers, they might not have had the year's experience of taking a hit, but I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely was not an enforcer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it helped me to know how to fight. I think it was, uh, you know, it helped tremendously to know how to take a punch, you know, and uh, not be afraid of getting hit by a punch. Um, again, for me, it was all about learning my balance and being able to get my punches off and, and learning how to, you know, tie up the other guy properly so he couldn't get free and, and you know, connect, you know, clear. But, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I, you know, I wasn't afraid to do it. So I, I just ran with it. So we ran, uh, I'm sorry, we read a, a, a clip article. I think the globe had it out about you getting called up to Moncton and uh, you had some kind of infection from a minor surgery and uh, you know, you weren't going to let that stop you from uh, getting your first AHL game. I don't want to blow the story. I'll let you tell the story, but I think it's kind of a nutty story. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was certainly uh, a call that I never expected to get. I you know, had been out of hockey now for like a year or two. I was still playing in leagues in my area because you know I, I still I enjoyed playing hockey and you know I um, would do it for exercise and I just but I didn't realistically think I would ever play as a fighter or as an enforcer again. And uh, and I did get a call from the Moncton Hawks, the, the affiliate of the Winnipeg Jets, the American Hockey League, and they were looking for a guy like immediately. Like my call came like on a Tuesday, and they were looking for me to play on Friday night. And um, you know, long story short, I had been in the hospital just a couple of days earlier. I had had surgery uh, under my armpit. I had developed some kind of a growth or a cyst or something that needed to be cut out. 
And from there, they put in what they call a drainage bag where they had a tube coming out of my side down into a bag. And it was kind of releasing the fluid that was left over so it wouldn't pocket up. And, uh, and it was taped to the side of me. And I was to wear the bag for about two weeks and then go back to the doctor. They'll take it apart and I'm good to go. Well, the call comes in and I'm talking to Adam, my best friend who helped me write the book and was my backbone since day one. And he said, well, you have to go. Like, what are you talking about? This is the American Hockey League, the second best league in the world. And I'm like, yeah, but I got this bag. It's like on my side. Like, what am I going to do? And he was like, he was like, we'll tape it up. We'll, we'll, we'll just wrap you like a mummy with like gauze and tape. I said, yeah, but what happens if like my shirt comes over my head during the fight and it, it, it's exposed or if they get ripped off me in a fight? Because listen, fights are unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. And um, I was like horrified. Well, anyway, I ended up telling the coach, I'm going to come up. No one knew what was going on prior to this as far as surgery goes. I get to the game, I skate, uh, morning skate. I skate the morning skate. Everything's fine. The bag stayed, stayed intact. I was like, okay, this is going to work out great. Pre-game warm-up, you know, with 10 minutes around getting your warm-up in, and the Zamboni comes on the ice, and we go back to the locker room, and I'm in the locker room, and I'm saying, I have to take this bag off. Because there's three guys that I'm facing tonight that are legitimate heavyweights. Ryan Vandenbush, played in the NHL, Todd Gillingham, and the killer of them all, Frank Bialois, Frank the Animal, who was at the time the heavyweight champion of the league. And, uh, and I just, for some reason, kind of panicked. So I go in the men's room, I go in the stall, I take off my equipment, and here's this bag. It's got like a hose coming out of my armpit. And I just start to pull it out. And the thing, I felt like I felt like a magician pulling a ribbon out of a hat. Because the, the hose was like two feet long. And uh, I'm getting nauseous. I'm getting lightheaded from it. I'm sitting down on the toilet while I'm pulling this thing out. So anyway, I get it out of me. It's bleeding. It needed to have sutures around it once it gets pulled out. I didn't know this. Of course, I broke the skin apart. And uh, so I put on two T-shirts, my pads, my hockey jersey. And I went out and uh, first period, I lined up next to Ryan Vanderbush. And I, you know, I, I wanted to have a fight. I wanted to, you know, give him a go. And uh, he didn't know me and I don't blame him. He told me to screw, you know, I didn't know who you are. In fact, he laughed. He said, you're only here for one night. Beat it. You know, and, and I get that uh, second shift in the second uh, time out on the ice. I got to go against uh, Frank Bialola. And uh, for those people that don't know, um, the cover of my book, Goon, is a picture of me with a huge black eye and a couple of stitches over my eye. The picture was taken literally like five minutes after I fought by a lower. And, um, but I got my fight. I got what I wanted, even though I lost. Um, it was still glorious to me. I get to play in the second best league in the world from skating on a pond just a few years earlier. And, uh, and again, the surgery... I, you know, I guess I just had to do what I had to do at the time. It may sound crazy and mental, but I couldn't give up on that opportunity and say no to it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very difficult situation. So, um, you know, we haven't really talked about, you know, the movie Goon or, or, or your book. Um, I think all of our listeners uh, are well-versed uh, in, in both, particularly the movie. But uh, not to get too much um, hanging on into the movie, 
you know, the, uh, what's the character? Glatt is supposed to be based on you, but obviously they had to take some uh, Hollywood liberties and make him kind of this dumb guy and, uh, and other liberties, uh, you know, to make it more Hollywood. But if you could kind of just do like a quick checklist, what would be some of the things that were actually you um, as opposed to the Hollywood bullshit that they had to put in there to make it a movie? Well, I mean, I think my skating and his skating was, you know, I don't think I was as bad as him, but, you know, I wasn't that good. And, and that was definitely a, a hindrance for me at the beginning. And, um, you know, I mean, he was there to fight and he got, he got noticed by someone and pulled him out of the stand, so to speak. And, uh, and that kind of was similar to me. You know, someone noticed me with some clout in the, in the game and they were able to open up some doors and give me the opportunity. Um, you know, there's some similarities, but like you said, uh, my book was an autobiography, and the movie was a little more on the fictitious side, and, and I get it. You know, I've told people before, you know, it wasn't the Doug Smith story, but, uh, you know, like you explained, they, they had to change some things and take a few movies to make it sellable. But, you know, here's the thing, though. So you, you already have your celebration, you know, with your best friend of, of doing this experiment of, hey, I, we, we can get you to play hockey and you might even be able to play pro. And you played in the AHL, not just in the East Coast League. But then years later, you write uh, you and your buddy write the book and then you sell the rights. So it's like another celebratory like, hey, this is uh, this. <laughs> cool crazy story continues on so what was it like for them to pick up the book and say hey we want to buy the rights to this and make a movie out of it yeah you know so while i was playing i would always call adam you know because like i mentioned earlier adam was my backbone i would call him the night of a game at midnight and say hey i just fought this guy from this team and i lost or i did well i'll get you the game tape from the video guy, and I'll send it home to you. And that's what I would do. I'd get the game tapes, I'd send them home to Adam so he could watch them, and uh, we always stayed in contact. So after a couple of years, Adam, who had a journalistic background, he was kind of a writer at the stage of his life. He had written some articles here and there for like Sports Illustrated, and he was kind of gearing himself to try to be a, a journalist. And he had said, you know, we should write a book. We should write a book about all these crazy minor league stories, the lifestyle, the bus rides, the just, you know, how these guys survive year after year trying to chase a dream. And uh, so we did put a book together, and we kind of did it in a chronological order of how we started at age 20 and right up to where we were at currently. And, um, and like you said, um, out of the blue, we got a phone call from a guy who was on a writing team in, in Hollywood. He said, listen, I was just at, I don't know, Chicago airport. And I saw your book on the shelf. And as soon as I saw the title Goon, and I saw your face on it with the big black guy, he says, I knew it was about hockey fighting. In some way, it was about hockey fighting. He says he bought the book. And by the time he took off and landed on his flight, he had finished the book. He was that into it. And he said that, I've talked to my, I've talked to the writing team that I'm involved with, and uh, we want to write a movie about hockey enforcers. And, you know, because they've been such a huge, intricate part of the game forever. And uh, we'd like to maybe base part of our script on your book. And in order to do that, though, we need to buy the rights from you. And I was like, you know, Adam and I were talking to these guys for a couple of days, and, and we couldn't even believe what was going on. Again, like you said earlier, to get to play from skating on a pond 
writing a book that actually got published and circulated as well as it did, and then to have it bought by someone in Hollywood. I mean, it was like it was like a fantasy. And uh, they ended up buying the lights from us, and, and the guy said, listen, you know, this is how it works. You know, we buy hundreds of books every year, and 99% of them sit on the shelf. They never get turned into a movie. Regardless of how we feel about the story, it just never seems to amount. So your book could sit forever, or it could be a movie someday. And he was trying to be very honest with us, saying, listen, let us buy it. Take the money and run. Because even if it sits, you're still going to make a few bucks. Your book's had its run. It's been out now for seven, eight, nine years. It's on the downside of sales. Take this extra money. Like he was being really honest with us. So we took the money, yeah, of course. And, um, and it was within six months, we get a phone call. Hey, we're writing a script. We're using your book. We'll be in touch with you. We want you to, we want, we want you to be like some kind of a consultant during the movie, you know, asking you questions about, you know, situations. You know, what would you do if this happened? Or what would you do if that happened? And um, we'll be in touch. Of course, I'm sitting back going, what is going on? It's nuts. Well, and, you know, again, your 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 career, so, so to speak, with hockey isn't finished. Um, you know, you go on to, uh, like you said earlier, coach um, f- former uh, and current NHL players of how to defend, how to fight. And, and I want to f- go into it this way. We had uh, Bobby Robbins on our show and Bobby had mentioned to us when, and he was one of our very first guests. He was our second guest. Yeah. Anyway, this is a few months ago. And he had talked about, you know, what was strange was as the Bruins, you know, called him up for 20 games or whatever. And he says, I had to work with this guy. He was this cop. From Boston, they and, a fight coach yeah, they us. they hired me a fight coach, and uh, he helped me coach. And then all of a sudden, Andrew and I are doing our homework on you, I and we're going, him. and we're going. Wait a minute, I think this is the guy. Yeah, is this the guy? <laughs> so, are you the guy? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, again, through through politics, so to speak, I knew the right people, and I kind of. Knew some people in the Bruins management, you know, uh, back in the day, the general manager, Michael Connell. And, um, you know, I kind of got in his ear one time and I said, you know, you should uh, you should bring me down to Providence. Providence is their American Hockey League affiliate. And I said, you know, let me go down there and work with some of these kids that you're drafting, you know, or even your free agents, kids that are European, kids that are college players that don't play North American style hockey, because we know how tough hockey can be. And, you know, if you're scared or you're nervous and you don't know how to fight or you don't know how to defend yourself, um, you know, you're really taking away from yourself, never mind the fact that, you know, the investment of the team that they've made in you is going to get shortchanged. So my, my sale to them was I can help these guys gain a little confidence if the gloves never come off. And, uh, and I lucked out, you know, I, I got a job with the Bruins and I worked down in Providence and, you know, I got to work with a kid like Bobby Robbins and a lot of other tough guys that made it up to the NHL. And, um, you know, it was just, I would incorporate a lot of boxing and fighting drills on the ice. And um, again, I always knew how to fight. I always knew I'd make a good trainer. I just knew I was going to be an actual pro fighter myself because I just had started too late. And again, I've said it before, I, I wasn't as good of an athlete as some of these guys were, but they would allow me to work with them. And, um, you know, 
I mean, some of these guys really excelled at it, and Bobby was one of them. Colt Moore, Steve McIntyre, there's a handful of guys I can name that I got to work with. Um, you know, there's a, there's a kid who's a Boston cop today, Brendan Walsh. Um, you know, I mean, all these guys who are good to me, they allowed me to work with them. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'll you know to say I hope that I had prolonged this career or gave them an extra level of resume status to bring to the ice. So, I mean, the, the game of, uh, well, should I say the strategy of fighting is different from the 80s where the 80s was, you know, last man standing, you know, throw your fist through the guy's face. Today's fighting seems to be a lot more clutching or grabbing a little bit more, you know, holding this, holding that, waiting for your moments. Um, how has that kind of changed you training some of these guys with this new way of fighting compared to just start throwing haymakers at each other yeah i mean my way has always been the same since the beginning to today which is i try to teach these guys defense first how to tie somebody up how not to get hit cleanly um you know today's fighter loves to grab by the front of the jersey you know jersey jab and then they'll try to throw one over with their other hand but if you're grabbing here that means that this guy has two free hands to throw at you and I don't believe in that. So I try to teach my guys how to tie somebody up first, and then you're going to get free through some other ways, but you're, you're locking him out. You're not going to just let him throw freely. So I don't believe in the front jersey jab. I mean, listen, unless you're like Zidane O'Chara and your arms are from here to down the street, and no one's going to hit you anyway, you can afford to do that. But most guys are all the same, you know, six feet to six four, you know, give or take, same arm length. So... And if everything's equal, you got to be smart about it. And I try to be smart with the fighting. Were you kind of a shadow guy, uh, help training these guys, or was it pretty well known in the organization and you could show up at TD Garden and, you know, go uh, meet some of these guys once they get up? Or was it just kind of you were the mystery guy that showed up for these fighters down in Providence? So I was an employee of the Bruins. I had an ID. I could come and go in the garden. I could come into games and like walk right in the back door where all the players came in. I mean, I had that incredible luxury through management. But uh, I can assure you, I'm one of those guys that really didn't use it. I just stayed low. Um, I refused to be uh, interviewed. I refused to expose what was going on because I knew that, you know, I was a commodity at the time. No other teams were doing what we were doing. And I just didn't want it to get out into the public that the Bruins had a fight coach. The Bruins had a guy on the ice literally sparring with these guys and teaching them how to fight because then everyone else is going to hire somebody. And wouldn't that be a great job for like an ex-NHL tough guy to latch onto a team and teach the young kids what we did for a living? So if I get exposed, the word's going to get out, and it's going to just, you know, domino effect. Everyone's going to start getting a guy like me. And so I try to keep it quiet, and uh, I don't feel like I shortchanged myself with publicity, and I, I didn't care about that. It wasn't about me getting a pat on the back. It wasn't about me being exposed and getting interviews and being on Channel 7, and I didn't care. I was more concerned with keeping it quiet so that no one knew what was going on, and these guys could climb the ladder without getting endless challenges from other teams now because they got exposed. 
So you, you, you worked uh, four or five years as assistant coach, working with kids in your hometown, um, Hanover, on the hockey team. And I remember reading uh, you talking about, of course, you're not teaching those kids how to fight, but you're talking about how to protect themselves and how to defend themselves. And we see a lot of you know, these big guys playing in the NHL, even the ECHL here mm-hmm. in Tulsa, players uh, are, are getting, uh, putting themselves in vulnerable positions to get themselves hurt. What were some of the ways that you were teaching these young high school kids to defend themselves and protect themselves? Because I think it is an art form. I mean, you know, McAvoy on the Bruins, I mean, great player, uh, but he needs to, you know, not put himself in such vulnerable positions that we've seen over the past few years. What are saying, and he's better at it, I think. Well, look at Marshan. Marshan does right. Marshan's a yeah, he's a genius of protecting himself. But what are some of those things, Doug, that you you can do as a player to protect yourself? Well, you're right. I mean, at the high school level, I coached my um, my high school. I graduated from Hannibal High School here and just south of Boston, Mass. And um, I coached for 21 years there. And you're right. You can't uh, teach fighting at that level. I mean, it's just, it's, it's they just can't fight. They get suspended. But uh, yeah, I would teach them other things that they did need, like body checking and how to go into a corner or against the board after the puck yet knowing that there's some guy breathing down their neck ready to try to knock them right into the snack box. And I would try to teach them body position and how to pivot and position themselves in the correct way that they could at least absorb the hit and not get hurt. And that was the best that I could do at the high school level because I couldn't take it the next step because it, it just didn't work. Uh, but you're right, guys like Marchant and, you know, I mean, we just watched the playoffs with, you know, the Islanders and Washington against the Bruins, and both teams had the same M.O. we got to run McAvoy through the boards because he's the quarterback. And if we can just take his legs out, so to speak, not physically, but just wear and tear where he's exhausted, um, you know, that's going to help us in the long run. And guys have to learn sometimes on their own how to make this work best for them. They don't really need a, a tutor. Yeah, and so do you – I like to ask this question, too, to any of our guests that were in forces, and I know that you're a bit different than some of the guys who just wanted to be professional hockey players. Um, do you still see fighting, and not just fighting in general, but, you know, being able to stick up for your teammates, and especially with, you know, like a situation like that Tom Wilson hit against Brandon Carlo, the high hit. You know, you start to see some guys – there's some bigger guys in the league that will take runs because there's not there's not guys like you that are out there to – you know, protect teammates and that's their job. So do you still see fighting in the sport of hockey to, to be useful in that sport? So do you think that, you know, the sport's already changed so much, it's probably on its way out? So the NHL's experiment has failed. And here's why. Fighting is going to come back. You can mark my words. I'll be the first one to say it on the show. Fighting is coming back and forces are coming back. I'm going to tell you why. Because some teams went with the new regime. Finesse, skill, get rid of the tough guy. See you later. Not everyone jumped on board. Okay? Las Vegas kept Rivas. The Islanders kept Martin. Uh, Washington has Wilson. There's a handful of teams that still have tough guys. Those guys are making an impact every single night against teams that are playing scared hockey now they don't have somebody 
So believe me, maybe not so much in playoff hockey, but in the regular season, every other night grind, you're going to see teams stop bringing in a tough guy. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So the experiment, I feel, didn't work because not everyone jumped on board. If every team got rid of their tough guys, or maybe if the league implemented an unbelievable anti-fight rule, then the fighting would be abolished. Listen, if the NHL didn't want fighting, let's face it, they could get rid of it tomorrow. Just like any other sport. You fight once, you're gone for 50 games. Or you're fined $500,000, a half of your paycheck, whatever. You want to really get rid of fighting? They can do it. They have never done it. You know why? Because they know it sells. They know the fans still want to see it. Not every fan, I get that, but a lot of people still enjoy that aspect of the game. And I'm not talking about 70s hockey with bench-clearing balls and the complete bullshit. I'm just talking about a one-on-one. You know, it might not be pre-planned, but a spur of the moment. You know, you and I are tussling in front of the net, and we just had a heated fight in the corner for the puck, and, you know, it came back out in front, and we're fighting and pushing and, you know, whatever, and next thing you know, the gloves come off. I don't think many people get upset about that. They understand the nature of the game and the aggressiveness in the game. But to answer your question... I think fighting is coming back. You're going to see slowly but surely, listen, the Bruins just re-signed Frederick. Now, he hardly played in the playoffs, but they know what he brings on his resume. Why do you sign him to a two-year pay raise? Why don't you just let him play out his contract? They rewrote his contract the other day because they know what they've got, and they're not going to get rid of him. Now, are they going to leave him up for exposure for this new uh, Seattle draft or whatever's coming up? I don't know. I doubt it, though. They wouldn't have signed him if they didn't want to keep him. No, I agree. And so as an ECHL alumni, this kind of goes into my next question. And we had on um, enforcer, actually, Mike McKee from the Tulsa Oilers. And uh, we had asked him his opinion. What was it? Two or three years ago, the ECHL had made that uh, 10 fight rule. So after your 10th fight, you start to get suspended every fight and it keeps going five, 10 games. Do you think that that was kind of kind of the NHL trying to trickle down their last-minute attempt to stop fighting, maybe to get the guys who are in the minor leagues, all those tough guys, to say, hey, you guys are no longer going to even be relevant in the game, or do you still think, no, it's going to come back no matter what? Well, I think you, you need a base. You need a, a place for these guys to you know, work on their skill, and it's going to be the minor leagues. And it might not be as crazy as it used to be years back, but again, you know, Every level is going to have fighters, and every team's minor league affiliate is going to have at least somebody that they can draw from when they need an instant call-up for that particular purpose. So will some kind of a ban, like you said, in the East Coast League with a 10-fight limit be lifted? It's probably going to get relaxed a little bit. Maybe they make it 20 fights. Who knows? But, you know, whatever the NHL does, it trickles down. So, again, if the NHL didn't want fighting, they could have abolished fighting years ago. Why haven't they? Because they know. It's a moneymaker. And so what – I'm curious of your opinion, Doug. What was your opinion of um, the, the Rangers and the Capitals incident, you know, with the Wilson scrum and then, you know, the three, four fights happened at the faceoff and then just kept going and going and going? Do you think that that – is going to kind of start what's going to be happening now with teams that, you know, teams are just tired of being pushed around because the Rangers are a young, small team with no really right. Tough Nobody guys. went after Wilson. 
then and, and I think the, the fans got bullshit and they said, you know, have some freaking pride on your team. Right. And you had no choice. And then you saw that little whatever line Smack, brawl or yeah, yeah. um, you know, but you know, at in the like he said, the Bruins need an import. We don't have a Thornton anymore. Right. So we so, don't even have a McQuaid. So, so what was your opinion then when when that happened? Was that like, I mean, old school hockey kind of defend yourselves coming back or what is your opinion on that? Well, this just this goes to show exactly what I'm talking about and why the NHL attempt to make us a finesse-filled league isn't going to work ever because you've got a guy like a Tom Wilson who, regardless if it was a clean hit or a cheap shot, he's out running around, and there's no one on the ranges, for example, to go head-to-head with him. So they're at a deficiency already. You answered the question a second ago. What do the Rangers do? They've had enough of it. We're going to send out three guys on the opening faceoff, and we're going to tell you off the faceoff, you and I, we're going. And every guy said the same thing. It was basically a five-on-five going on because the Rangers said, like you just said, we've had enough. We can't get pushed around. Again, mark my words, the Rangers will have a heavyweight for the upcoming season. Yeah, and they and, have to. Yeah. They have to. And and it seems to me, you know, sitting on the couch again, uh, <laughs> the fans sitting on the couch that it's it's too much of the face wash, too much of the petty bullshit after the goalie uh, you know, ties up the puck, you got a face up. It nobody drops the gloves, everybody throws in a little cheap shot with their glove, face wash pulling the jersey it's almost to the point where it's like just drop the gloves and go stop with this stupid shit every single time and that's what we're seeing in the playoffs right i mean it's just you know uh you need that release valve i think as a team to let somebody go toe-to-toe with somebody else get it out of the system meaning not just a player but the teams and then settle down and and hopefully get uh that uh that uh uh, not the motivation, but the, uh, the momentum. The momentum. Well, yeah, they talk about that a lot too, Doug. And, and, and do you agree with that? Was there always a lot of momentum on the bench if you get into a good scrap and everything? I mean, your teammates all hyped up, or is it just kind of like, yeah, it's more for the fans? Well, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I only fought for my team's best interest. I wasn't really fighting for the fans, even though I knew they loved it. And, um, you know, I was out there to fight the guy that just did something stupid. I went after a guy that just cheap shot at one of my players or really took a hard one at him against the board. Um, so, I mean, my, my role was purposeful. Um, like you said earlier, you know, every whistle in the playoffs, for an example, you know, someone's coming from behind someone else and like yanking their head off their shoulders and gloving them in the face. And all you need is one or two guys to get that and turn around and say, no, and here we go. Stop throwing shots. It won't happen anymore. But, you know, you get all these, you get all these kids that are like, say, college players who have always worn a shield or a mask, and, you know, they think that's part of the game. I'm just going to, you know, rub my glove in your face and piss you off. But if you get the wrong guy in old old-time hockey would say, you're not doing that to me, kid. I'm dropping my gloves. I'm punching you right in the face. And you won't do that again, ever. We don't have that element anymore. So today's game is so out of control. Never mind the fact that the referees don't call that as penalties. No. They let it happen. Yeah. 
you know, the referee said at the beginning of each game, he went to each bench and said, listen, when I blow the whistle, cut the bullshit. I don't want any more sticks. I don't want face washing. I don't want something getting pulled from behind. Get off of each other. Blow the whistle. The play is dead. Stop. If you continue, you're getting a two-minute. Well, they don't do that either. That's why it keeps going on for a minute. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to our, our lightning round, um, where we're going to ask, Ooh, yeah, we're going to yeah. get you to the whole quick questions and try to uh, get you to get quick answers. So uh, obviously you've been a cop your professional life uh, outside of hockey. So have you ever get, uh, you know, the asshole? And, and, and if, if you don't want an answer, you don't have to. I don't want to get you in trouble at work. But you get the asshole that you pull over for something and, they, you know, they start giving you a, you know, I pay your fucking salary, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, maybe you should say, hey, you know, do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> Just take the ticket, kid, and go. <laughs> um, you know, I'll tell you, times have changed for being a cop, especially in my area. Um, you know, I get that type of lip from people all the time. And I just bite my tongue, and I'm almost happy that nobody knows I have a history or a background in actual fighting or hockey. I think if people knew who I was, some people would almost instigate me even more, hoping that I would yeah. slug them yeah. so that they could take me to court and sue me. Right. So I look at things that way. Um, so I have a very long fuse when it comes to dealing with the public because I know the way the game is. And I know the way they play it out in the street. And uh, if, you, if you cave in too quick, you're vulnerable and you're going to pay the price later in court. And I don't want to get sued no more than any other cop wants to get sued. You see it every night. And, um, you know, would it be easy for me to grab someone and punch their teeth down their throat? Of course it would be. It'd take me two seconds. <laughs> but again, I can't do that because I'm going to be in trouble. Um, so, uh, you know, when I started before, I, I would love to do what I used to do in hockey out on the street today. It would be enjoyable, but you just can't. <laughs> <laughs> so have you had anybody recognize you, challenge you because they knew who you were from either your boxing days or your hockey days or even the movie? Um, all in a good way. Okay. I've had a lot of people, um, recognize me. They'll say, Hey, you're the hockey guy, uh, whatever. And, I've actually had people say to me, can I get a picture with you? Can I get your autograph? You know, and I might joke and say, yeah, you'll get my autograph on the ticket. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's all been a positive. I've never had anyone, thankfully, and I hope I'll knock on wood, but hopefully uh, it never changes. But it's always been positive. I've never had anyone say, you know, I want a shot at you because I know your background. All right, lightning round here. I'll start. Who is your favorite line mate? I got to play with a kid. Let me think now. I get to play with a kid in the East Coast Hockey League. His name was Neve Plaskin. He didn't play a lot, but he was absolutely the craziest kid I ever met in my life. He was pot Indian. He was probably five foot five. And uh, he was not to the point where he would literally like just stare guys and cross check guys right in the face, like blatantly. Uh, but he would drop his gloves and fight too. He wasn't like a mosh on. Um, he was a savage on the ice, scary, scary player, but I loved him. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the people you find, it doesn't matter which league, who punched the hardest? 
Well, I have to give credit to uh, Frank Bialowicz, my first real pro game in the American Hockey League, and he gave me my opportunity. And, uh, you know, without him saying yes, and regardless of me winning or losing, um, you know, he opened the door for me. And I'll always love him for it. And I know it sounds crazy. You know, the guy just kicked my ass, but I'm thanking him for it. It's not so much of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely punched hard. And, again, uh, we talked about it earlier. If I didn't have a boxing background, if I didn't know how to take a punch, and uh, anyone that had seen that fight or could see it on YouTube, I mean, he landed probably five direct punches right in my face. And I never went down, and I'm proud of that moment. But, uh, you know, if I was just a regular guy, I'm sure he would have crumbled me and I would have been taken off of the stretcher. Yeah. The craziest thing or most embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game? You know, my, um, I'll say that I didn't get a lot of ice time as a player. I was very one-dimensional. I was specifically put out most of the time on the stoppage of a play, line up next to the other team's tough guy or line up next to the guy who, they want me to take out because he's being an asshole. Um, but I will say I did have an opportunity in the East Coast League my first year in Carolina. I was on the ice. Somehow I got a breakaway. <laughs> and I was skating across the center of the ice, going towards the blue line, going towards the goalie, getting ready to shoot the puck. And I fell. I fell down. What, did the blue line trip you? I guess so, but I never got the shot off, and I was a laughing stock by both benches, but ever. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Who was the biggest rat that you've ever played against? Just somebody that got under your skin that just wouldn't fight you, but, you know, describing like your buddy earlier, just would spear you and crush you, but just wouldn't fight. Uh, I never had a guy like that, you know, and unfortunately for your question, I don't have a name, but, uh, you know, I kind of always went against all the heavyweights and all the heavyweights. There was an honor. There was a code. There was no bullshit. You know, I, I, I didn't have to go spare a guy to get him to fight. We knew our roles. And, you know, if the score was, uh, you know, indicative of the outcome of the game, you know, it's nine to nothing in the third period, we're going to fight. And he knows it. And uh, even though, um, like I said, I had a purpose out there, um, I didn't really have anyone that treated me that way, which I was thankful for. Yeah, and so um, what What was your then, I mean, you know, you didn't grow up playing hockey and everything growing up until way later. So were you, I mean, was it just kind of a different experience trying to learn the code i mean how, how did you learn the code and the on ice stuff that went on between the fighters and everything you know just even though i didn't play hockey i still watched hockey a lot i was a Bruins fan i was a Flyers fan i loved individual players more than teams themselves you know i loved terry o'reilly or i loved dave brown and you know i just would follow these guys and uh you know, I was a student of hockey fighting. I, I had hockey fight tapes and VHS tapes. And, and you know, and I had plenty of friends that played the game, like Adam. And, and I knew and learned as I went what all these codes were and what they meant and how they affected me as a player once I got there. And I, you need to follow that or, um, you know, you quickly find out what happens when you don't. 
Who was the toughest goalie that you had to face against? The, tu- <laughs> the toughest goalie. Uh, have you been doing some reading? So I did fight a goalie once, um, and I know that's almost unheard of. But long story short, in that New Brunswick Men's Senior League, um, the Prince Edward Island team had a goalie. He was actually a former Olympic boxer for Canada. So he knew how to fight. And, yep, and I got to meet him before the game. Because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew of him. And, again, he didn't really know who I was. But uh, I wanted to meet him because I was intrigued. You know, like, here's a guy who's an Olympic boxer. And I was only, like, an amateur. I fought in my local tournaments. You know, I fought in the New England Golden Gloves. But I certainly didn't represent the United States. So this guy was, in my opinion, like, elite. And so I got to meet him before the game. And, uh, you know, he knew who I was because I had already had a handful of games there and knew that I was there to fight. But um, to actually fight a goalie was, you know, it's still today as it was back then, it's unheard of. But uh, we had talked and, uh, you know, he had said, uh, you know, we should have a go. We should, we should try each other. <laughs> and it happened. We fought each other during the game. And, um, and the fight, he was playing in the game the night that we fought each other and it didn't go that great for either one of us because, you know, as you can well imagine, a goalie has all that equipment on and he can't really get free. And so it kind of turned out to be more of a wrestling match. But um, two weeks later, we played again. And this time we fought each other in warmups before the game. And he had no pads under his shirt. So this was kind of prearranged. Like, yeah. I'm not going to wear my chest protector. I'm not going to wear my arm pads. I'm going to just wear a jersey with, like, a T-shirt. And we're going to have a fight during pregame warm-up. And that's what happened. The horn blew. The Zamboni starting to come out. My players went off the ice on one end. His players went off on the other end. And he and I just kind of stood at either doorway of where we get off. And we just started to kind of gravitate to the center of the ice, just kind of nodded our heads. And we said, let's do it. And we squared off. And when I tell you the roar of the crowd, the anticipation of this fight that could happen during the game is now actually happening in warmups. Um, it was electrifying and uh, it was a good fight. I mean, you know, we both got a couple of shots in and we fell to the ice and, you know, the linesmen and the players, they all came back out to see it and watch it. They let it happen. Um, you know, they broke us up. We both get kicked out of the game, but it was unbelievable. So, so anyway, to answer your question, Wayne Bernard. Wayne Bernard was the goalie. Prince Edward Island and former Canadian Olympic boxer. Wow. And finally, um, if you had to pick one moment, what would be your favorite memory of your playing career? I'd have to say my one first game in the American Hockey League fighting by a lowest. Again, even though I got my app handed to me, I didn't belong there. I ended up getting four or five more games in the American League with a couple of other teams after that. But um, that first game was the game. I mean, again, just a couple of years earlier, I was stumbling around on a pond trying to figure out how to keep my balance. 
And now I'm in the American Hockey League. And, um, you know, the guy gave me a chance, like I said earlier. So that would always be my first favorite regardless of the outcome for me. Well, Doug, this has been uh, a great show for us. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'm sure the audio is going to be just fine because I don't know if we could do it better than the way we did it. But but anyway, I will say goodbye to you offline. But officially, we want to thank you for coming on this Father and Son Hockey Podcast. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back uh, just to kind of talk a little bit more about the code and and the enforcer. And like you say, you know, you spent a long time coaching some of these uh, younger Bruins players that went on to, uh, well, Providence players that went into the NHL and talk a little bit about a little bit about enforcer stuff, if you don't mind. We'd love to have you back. I would love it. You guys are fantastic. I appreciate the question. And, uh, you know, I love being open and candid with people. So uh, anything goes with me. And um, like I said, thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks. Andrew, Doug Smith. Doug Smith from the Movie Goon. Incredible playing career. I mean, all the stories and everything. I'm sure we could have had him on for three hours and could get even more stories. Uh, Yeah, I mean, a great guy. And we will have him on again uh, just because there's so much to talk about with him. Like I said, you know, him working for the Bruins for – 10 years as a, you know, their secret weapon with the uh, teaching the young kids how to defend themselves and, and a little bit of fighting tips. And uh, so, uh, you know, a great guy. And again, had a great best-selling book, made yeah. it into a movie. Sounds like the Bruins are going to hire uh, Doug Smith as a fight coach again and toughen up that team. And we didn't really get to talk too much about his his best friends that that made it happen. He kept mentioning him and uh, we'll have to talk about him because it seemed like he was the driving force to say, hey, you can do this, Doug. And then wrote the book with him, too. Right. Kind of like the movie. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, anyway, uh, we're running a little long here, and we're hoping that the uh, audio is going to be good enough. We're going to find that out here after we pause. Yeah. But uh, we want to thank everybody, and uh, we'll have uh, – who's our next guest, Andrew? Sylvain Cloutier. I don't know if I'm Cloutier. pronouncing that right. Yeah, yeah he's a Calder Cup winner, two-time EIHL championship winner as well. He's a he's going to be a really good guest, and he's a big time AHL guy. Might have made an appearance in the NHL. I don't I don't remember, but no, he'll be a good one to have on too. So we're excited to have him on next week. All right, we'll catch you guys later. Take care. All right, have a good one.